Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I hope you're listening, Bruce Wayne. I'm just here to unmask the truth. The mayor, the commissioner, murdered. The Riddler's latest, it's all about the Waynes. Gotham needs you to answer for the sins of your father. What have you done? He will go. What have you done? Nothing. Maybe this is all coming to an end. What is? The Batman. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Well, this week, I'm joined once again by my very special guest... Umberto Gonzalez, HeroicHollywood.com founder, fanboy journalist, and beat reporter for TheRap.com, and all-around fanboy. I'm Rafi's dad, of course. And I'm Rafi's dad. <laughs> and I'm really happy you were willing to jump back on, because I still have questions. And oh. I know my listeners have questions, too. And oh. there's also lots of people in the fan base of the Batman movie. I've seen they have quite a few questions. So I thought we'd wrap it up in a part three. Oh, cool. So first things first. I remember you saying to me when we first met that you were a super nerd, an unashamed super nerd. And you said about your love for comic books, I would love to know and share with my listeners, why did you start reading comic books and what sort of age were you when you got into them? I could tell you precisely, actually. We are Generation X, people that came of age in the 80s and our adolescents came of age in the 80s. In June of 1982, I'm eight years old. I'm in front of a television watching WPIX Channel 11, and then I see this 30-second commercial that's going to change the course of my life and my career, quite frankly. It was an animated commercial, not for a toy or a television show or program, but for a comic book. 
This was a revolutionary idea back in the day. It hasn't been done ever since. An animated 30-second commercial action pack for a comic book, okay? So it was G.I. Joe number one. And then, like most boys my age, we went and got G.I. Joe number one, and I was hooked. G.I. Joe went on to be the best-selling comic for Marvel in the 1980s. Not the Avengers, Captain America, or X-Men. And it was a job nobody wanted at the company. It was seen, it was looked down upon because it was a toy comic. Along comes Larry Hammer, who's a former veteran. He elevates the material. He makes it grounded, realistic, and even uses technical manuals to explain a lot of the military jargon and stuff. So it was awesome. So I would get my comics back in those days in stores and, and shops. They were available everywhere. What's called spinner racks that don't exist anymore. So what happened was there was a comic book shop, a very famous one called Mike's Comic Hut. And Mike, the proprietor, God rest in peace, he died of cancer in 95. I was crushed. Yes, G.I. Joe kept the lights on everything, but he would then push boys. You should try this. You should, he would, like He helped refine my taste. So cut to about four years later, it's 1986. And it's like... You should check this out. And it was Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. So basically, real quick, the story is about a 55-year-old Batman who comes out of retirement because he quit when he was 45 and gave up the cape and then Gotham descended into madness, so he comes back. So that four-issue miniseries was pretty awesome. And then he would follow it up a year later because he signed a contract to do two stories. He did Batman's Omega, which is The Dark Knight Returns, and then Batman's Alpha, which is what you read Batman Year One. So I'm reading this. I'm like, wow, blown away. Yeah, it was the 400s. So after Batman Year One, I just started reading the book every month. And then my favorite Batman story of all time came out just uh, about a year later called Ten Nights of the Beast by Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin is the guy who created Thanos. But back in those days, he would bounce between Marvel and DC. And he wrote this incredible story about an enhanced super soldier called the KG Beast, who was part of a rogue element of the KGB called the Hammer. And he was sent to Gotham to kill nine individuals that was involved with the Strategic Defense Initiative, aka the Star Wars program. Remember, it's the 80s, it's Reagan. We're gonna put satellites in space to protect us, create the shield against nuclear Armageddon. Well, this super soldier comes and Batman has to stop him, right? So I've always gravitated towards Bat buildings that could match Batman physically and go toe-to-toe with him. So in issue 418 at the end, and I want to read it for your listeners because this was riveting. Batman issue 418, 10 Nights of the Beast, you know I have it. I collected it in in 9.8. So basically he goes, I survive, but the beast escapes, leaving a startling realization in the wake of his departure. I finally run into someone who's better at this game than I am. And I was riveted. Because Batman means never losing. And in this miniseries, you got this guy, this super soldier, who's a match for Batman physically, mentally, tactically, and basically Batman's left behind. So he's got to outsmart this villain in order to beat him, which he does in issue 420. But I was hooked by then. Starlin also did Batman the Cult. Then they killed Robin off in the death in the family. So the mid to late 80s was, I think, a renaissance in Batman storytelling where Frank Miller, Jim Starlin, they take Batman back to his, in the early 70s, just like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, which you mentioned in previous episodes. These gentlemen helped reinvigorate Batman for modern audiences and take him back to his dark Avenger roots in the late 30s, the way Bob Kane and Bill Finger intended. So then that opened up the world for me. Then in the late 
the mid 1980s or early 90s was the peak comic book collecting boom. And I was basically, I would get $5 a day from my father. I would save the money. And that's what I would use to finance my comic book collection. I wouldn't eat. I would just go buy comic books. And back in those days, it was affordable. It was an incredible time. I just loved comic book reading. It was entertaining because all these writers that are being celebrated to this day elevated the storytelling and the, the medium and the graphic novel format and comic books. And even Time Magazine called The Dark Knight Returns, one of the greatest graphic novels of the 1980s. Basically, it elevated the medium. And I was hooked and I've been a comic book reader now. This is my 40th year because June of 82. So it's also the 40th anniversary of G.I. Joe. But G.I. Joe led to a comic book shop, which led to me reading Batman, Watchmen, and all the pivotal titles of the late 1980s. And here we are. Wow, that's so cute. So you saved up all your money and wouldn't eat or wouldn't spend it on sweets or candy or all those other things. And it was all about comic books. And of course, your collection is vast. Yes. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But in terms of Batman, the Batman specifically, what was it about him that captured your attention? Batman's immortal. He could be like any of us. He's basically the pinnacle of human achievement physically. Like he became a decathlete. He trained his whole body for pretty much 20 years to be the crime fighter that he is. He mastered many arts, including being a detective, being a lockpick, every discipline possible, which is what's being explored now. Like I mentioned previously, Batman the Night, where you see his actual crusader in his route to don the cowl and become the Cape Crusader. But Bat, it's just his resolve, his resiliency, and how he always wins or how he always outsmarts villains. And that's due to the writers that I admire. But Batman just did it for me. I always gravitated towards vigilantes, spies, military men, assassins. So, but Batman, he's the best at what he does, period. He's, he's the ultimate fighter in the DC universe, again, a decathlete. So then I would always gravitate to villains like KG Beast, Deathstroke, and then Bane would break Batman's back five years later after uh, year after year one. Or it was in 94. I forget. But in the early 90s, they killed Superman off. And then a year or two later, they followed up with the breaking of the Batman. And it was a Latino character named Bane. And I, I have the original Vengeance of Bane 1 and 2. And it was also Nightfall, Night's End, and then Night Quest. And I recently bought the whole volume in trade paperback form to revisit it. But Batman kept me... It was great storytelling. You came back every month and they were selling hundreds of thousands of copies before the launch of the Image comic founders like Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane. These were mega stars in art that they all left Marvel and DC to form their own company and comics pivoted toward them. But each of these guys had a crack at Batman, Todd McFarlane with year two. Uh, Jim Lee would be synonymous with Batman and still do covers to this very day. Basically, these artists elevated the material, and then the writing was always on point. So it was required reading growing up for me because it was elevated, and it was so good. Basically, I stopped reading G.I. Joe and then started reading, you know, because you would grow up and move on. And I just loved Batman. And he, I would read Batman, The Punisher, uh, Captain America, a lot of the other spinoffs. Batman, then the movie came out in 89, and it was Batmania. But the books always stayed focused on the character. 
you know, Legends of the Dark Knight, Detective Comics, the main Batman continuity. And it was pretty awesome. It was an awesome time to be a kid in the 80s because I don't think there's been a run. I mean, sure, not to discount the work of Jeff Loeb in the early aughts and Scott Snyder, who did the incredible Court of Owls, which may be explored as, as a sequel possibility. That'd be it's something in your wheelhouse. That's for another episode down the line. But yeah, Batman just does it for me. He's just the most relatable superhero because he's a man. He's not, he doesn't have superpowers or anything, but he's just relatable. Everybody to at one point or another wants to be Batman. I'd rather be Bruce Wayne though. <laughs> and by the way, Umbe is saying all of this while sat in his Batman shirt. And we're sat by his desk with all the Batman figurines and statues on it. So he truly is into this stuff, lives it, breathes it, talks it nonstop. So tell me, Umbe, what's your favorite scene from the Batman movie? That's going to be tough because there's two of them, but I think when he escapes the Gotham Police Department, when Jim gives him the key to go out through the back and then he just runs and then uses the battering to launch himself up to the roof of the tapestry, I think, and then he paraglides and escapes. And that's a very Batman thing because he's always got an angle or an escape plan or a backup plan on how to get out of there. Like I was wondering, watching the movie as it unfolded with you, he's in the police department surrounded by dozens of cops. And, and about to be unmasked. And they about wanna... to be unmasked, that's right. So it's like, how the hell is he going to escape from this? And then Matt Reeves and his screenwriters, Peter Craig and Matt Tomlinson, came up with this incredible scene, and it was pretty awesome. But not to this, I'm a car chase buff in movies as well, Like, and it had a very French connection type car chase scene between Batman and the Penguin when he's chasing the Penguin in the chase scene with, in that muscle car of his. I forgot what kind of vehicle that was, but uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome too. But I got to give it to the police department, Gotham Police Department escape. That's my favorite scene in the movie, yeah. Okay, but it was Gordon who came up with the escape plan. Just well, he gave FYI. him the key. Yeah, he gave him yeah. the key. And then bam, doesn't, just because they give you a key doesn't mean, you know, you got to figure out a way to get out of here, which is what he did. Yeah, he hit Gordon and the rest is history. <laughs> go, okay. go watch the movie. But it was Gordon who came up with the solution there. And yes, he became creative and inventive as we see Batman in this movie in particular. Yeah. I'm Matt Reeves director of The Batman. In this scene, Batman, played by Robert Pattinson, finds himself in the clutches of the GCPD unexpectedly inside this interrogation room, and Gordon, Jeffrey Wright, is in a position where he really needs to figure out a way to get Batman out of here. Through that door, hallway to the stairs that go to the roof. Because he knows that these guys have ill intentions for him. And to me, I think what was important as the scene began was to see Batman in a circumstance we don't usually see him in, which is that he's not trusted at all by the police. And it's almost like these two characters, Gordon and Batman, are sort of partners in a way that's almost like Woodward and Birdstein or something. They're trying to get to the bottom of this crime. And the Riddler is sort of a very demented kind of deep throat. And that then he explodes out of this moment into what would be classically a Batman scene where he would do something heroic and hit a button and take off, but I wanted to see how all of this was happening in this version by the seat of his pants, that Rob as Batman is never really in control. He's just barely making it. When he's being brought up, we affixed the camera to the line, so you're literally above him and, and at the camera is being pulled along with Rob as he's shooting up into the sky. We had him on an ascender. He stands on the edge, and instead of being a kind of fearless Batman, Rob does this wonderful take where he's like, oh no, this is not good. 
And then as he jumps, all of these shots are based on shots that I've seen on YouTube of what wingsuiters actually do. To me, what was really important was to put you in the shoes of this character who is out of control. And I wanted to do it in a kind of subjective, almost Hitchcockian way where the shots, you would see things from his perspective and you would travel with him. So I wanted to make sure that while that was a heightened reality, that it was as close to reality as possible. So I wanted to make sure that that landing hurt. And he just takes a vicious tumble. And when it's over, he's just kind of feeling like, gosh, am I still alive? And that was the version of Batman that I wanted this to be. And you said that you prefer Bruce Wayne. And we, we keep flip-flopping between, you call him Bruce Wayne throughout the whole movie, and I make the distinction, the Batman yes. and Bruce Wayne. But I gotta say, I mean, my favorite portrayal actually is this one of Bruce Wayne. Oh, okay. And the reason being is this. You might not ask, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. No, I do wanna know. Okay, well, it's the fact that Bruce Wayne isn't a playboy. He's not this womanizing character. And you can always tell when something's written by a man because they think that the height of success is somebody being a playboy, being debonair, but using women. And actually, for me, it just shows that they are a big red flag. It tells me that they can't deal with intimacy, actually. And that's not an attractive characteristic at all in my book. It's actually a big red flag. Okay. So for the women listening to this, if you are with someone who's emotionally unavailable, that shouldn't be attractive. <laughs> and if they are a womanizer, that should, you know, a cheeky chap, all those things that it gets dressed up as, that shouldn't be an attractive feature. The play is much more around philanthropy, where we see him as a beacon of hope. And I think that that is far more interesting as a character development point than anything else. So I hope that Matt Reeves keeps him in that vein, because I'd like to see a lot more of Bruce Wayne wrestling with his demons, wrestling with the trauma, trying to do the right thing. Not always getting it right, but trying to do the right thing and treating women well. You know, from reading Frank Miller, Year One, I've got to say there is clearly some sexism in there. I mean, it was the 1980s also. Yeah, it was. It was 1986, but... 87. 1987. <laughs> there we go. And base hot, hot to trot on the dates. But I do think, you know, things like that now, it shows that it's dated. And yes. if you've got young boys reading that where scream like a girl and every reference to a woman has a negative connotation, that just doesn't sit well with me. We don't see that in this particular Batman. Well, there's one reference that I do want to bring up, but, okay. but what are your thoughts on that? Batman, Bruce is not really, even in the comics, he's not really a playboy. It's just a distraction technique that he uses. And he often, as you saw, he pays the women, you know, to act like they're into him or they, because it's, it's to throw off the scent that Bruce Wayne's the Batman. It's to help protect his identity. But they've gone off that in the comics for years now, even decades. I mean, Batman had a son in the comics named Damien. He's had more fulfilling relationships with, like, Talia al Ghul and, of course, Selina Kyle. Like, Selina Kyle, I think, is the love of his life, quite frankly. And there's, what you see in the movie is very, is very much from the comics and the toe-to-toe -to -toe that they go with. Will they? Won't they? Will they be together? Won't they? And writer Tom King's been exploring that lately in the Batman-Catwoman miniseries. But, yeah. But it's also how you characterize women, more importantly, of if you characterize them as just sexual objects, i.e. they're just there to be used as a mask for someone. That's not cool for me either. Okay. If it's Gordon's wife and she's just, just a stay-at-home pregnant woman, 
that's all we know about her. And she's just there making him coffee or making him tea. Again, we're just falling into big stereotypical, this is what a woman's role is. So I think like future looking, I'm going to be very interested to see how the characters develop. Because I was trying to think when you talked about as a young boy, these were the comics that you were into of what the female equivalent was. I was scratching my head. I mean, there were things like Jackie and, yeah, Jackie was probably the main magazine and Just 17. But that's, you're a little bit older for that kind of stuff. I guess there's Barbie and Cindy and that kind of... I have to interject the work of George Perez, who in the 1980s, around that time, also revitalized Wonder Woman and made her a superstar. So, yeah, that's not entirely accurate. Okay, well, let's take Wonder Woman then. So, women get one, Wonder Woman... Anything else? Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Jean Grey from the X-Men. This is around the time when the Dark Phoenix saga, which was has been made into two terrible movies now. Well, oh, just, my God, Electra Assassin. That's another work by Frank Miller. Frank Miller then did a prestige format about this assassin who was a lover of Daredevil, the blind lawyer who beats people who's like a Batman of sorts at night. But he had a lover named Electra, which was made into a movie, not a good one either. But Electra was a, a huge comic, and the, the, the four issues were, were huge in the mid-1980s. Right, but she was the lover of another main character. But then they spun her off in her own And then she became someone in her own right, which, she, of course, no, as no. we've always seen in acting yeah. terms, you know, women haven't always been main characters in their own right. They've been love interests. Right, but, but I was just curious about that because everything that you talked about tended to sound very male-oriented rather than... And I know now there's far more, and thank goodness for Marvel and DC making lots of female characters into their own stand-up main characters, and I I think that's brilliant. Electra was amongst the first of them to do so there, and it was a great story to Electra Assassin. Okay, well, let's get back to the Batman. Oh, here we go. I have some other questions for you. Hit me. Okay, what were you thinking when... You know the hospital scene where we see the Batman and the Riddler having a confrontation? And for me, there were vibes there of Hannibal Lecter behind the glass. Do you remember that scene? Personally, it's one of my favourite scenes. the interrogation. Yeah, the interrogation scene. And quite early on, the Riddler starts talking about the Batman and then he starts saying, Bruce Wayne, Bruce, and he starts saying his name. What was your interpretation of that? Did he know that the Batman, or what did you think? Did he know that the Batman was Bruce Wayne or not? Thought In hindsight, because I went on the internet, I think after Bruce survived the hit that was supposed to be for him and happened to Alfred, instead, Alfred was the victim. I think that's when the Riddler started, wait a minute, started figuring out this kid might be Batman. I'm of the opinion, yes, he knows who Batman is. But in that scene, do you think he knew? Yes, and so it was intentional, in your view, to unseat the Batman. Correct. Yeah, it was, that was my interpretation. And then I did wonder about why, why is he sending a letter to the Batman when he's trying to kill Bruce Wayne? But that did come beforehand. And then the other point was when we were in the Riddler's um, hideout, there were obviously all those newspaper cuts with Bruce Wayne and about unmasking who is the Batman and Bruce Wayne's eyes scratched out. Yeah. And I felt that the Batman became very nervous at that point. And he then whispered to Gordon, the Batman may be coming to an end. Yes. Right? So I think he was, he felt he was, it was just about to be revealed. That was probably part of the Riddler's next plan. Was that what you were thinking? I was thinking too, like there was going to be this big reveal where he comes out on his social media channels and says, Bruce Wayne is the Batman. 
Like, that's what it was building up towards. But then Matt Rees, being the skilled storyteller that he is, took us in another direction. Yeah, all part of the intention, I think, right? Yeah. By Matt Reeves. And we talked about, well, we've talked quite a lot about the Riddler. And I guess lots of people on their minds, the thought of Heath Ledger, the Joker versus Paul Dano's the Riddler. What do you think? Or where where do you land? If you had to pick which is the most convincing and true villain in the Batman genre in terms of what Heath Ledger did with the Joker or Paul Dano's The Riddler? That's not a fair question, but I have to answer it. (laughs) Yes, you do. Okay, so the Joker, to me, is an anarchist, okay? Not a clown or a clown person. He's an anarchist. And Heath Ledger nailed that character in that performance, which is why he won the Oscar. Paul Dano is up there and is a great and a fantastic actor, but I give a slight edge to Heath Ledger's because it's an iconic performance. Come on. It was. I'm not going to fight you on that. I mean, it was incredible. I saw it in London. It was when we were separated and I was stuck in London and I went to see it. I would have gone to the premiere with you if I hadn't been stuck in London um, because of the pandemic. But it was incredible. And it's one of the few movies where I just sat there afterwards, after the credits had run, just thinking about everything that I had seen and digesting and reflecting. But he was just sublime in that performance. Just oh, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and it holds, I mean, that's the character that's won more Oscars than any other IP. The joke, you know, Joaquin Phoenix years later would win the Oscar for playing the Joker in a more grounded take by Todd Phillips. But uh, yeah, I mean, Paul Dano scares me, okay, as the Riddler. Oh, wow, something scares well, Mr. Umberto Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah, no, because he's... <laughs> Because he's so gifted and smart. The Rid- Edward Nigma, which is the Riddler's name, is a very, very, very smart character. But I think cinematically, Ledger gets the anarchy component of the Joker. And that's what he delivered. Yeah, he was just sublime. And you felt him as the Joker in every cell of his body. And I still remember the staircase scene where he comes down the stairs dancing. He's outside. And it is an incredible scene. But the whole while you're thinking the awareness raising around mental health using a character like the Joker, what an incredible thing that Todd Phillips and Heath Ledger did there. But I will just say that Paul Dano as the Riddler, I do feel that he got the insidious nature of that character and the modern day take on it. And based on so many, what I call creepometer factors. You know, when I train detectives, I always say, we've all got a creepometer. It's the thing where the hairs on the back of our neck go up. Yes. You know, where, and they always laugh at that. But even wily detectives have that creepometer. The problem is with techos, as I call them, is that the more that we do the work that we do, we can become slightly anaesthetized to things. So I always want to get detectives' creepometers working. And I think that's what Matt Reeves and Paul Dano have delivered in that character. I think that Matt Reeves and Paul Dano, they did their homework on what are the creepiest things about a serial killer. They distilled it all into one character. But of course, it's kudos to Paul Dano because he's got to make that performance convincing. He's a great actor. He specializes in those kind of characters. Like He was great in Prisoners as well. So I'm pretty sure Matt Reeves saw that movie and cast him in the role the way 
he saw a good time. Like, I forgot to mention this previously. Once Pattinson got cast as a Batman, there was a movie that Matt Reeves saw that said, this guy could be it. And it was Good Times by the Safdie Brothers, which is on Netflix. And basically, Pattinson played someone from Queens. And the accent and everything was authentic. I was like, okay. I never said that the guy didn't have chops. He does have great acting chops. And in that performance, I could say, okay, I could see him being Bruce Wayne and Batman after seeing that movie. So I wanted to add that. And if you want to see a great Robert Pattinson performance, check it out. Good Time by the Safdie Brothers. Yeah, so that leads on to my next question, actually, which is, who's your best Batman? Who does it for you? Come on, I have to ask that question. Uh, Is Robert Pattinson up there? Is he your numero uno? All right. The suit, okay, like the bat suit. I love what Ben Affleck's bat suit was in the first Batman v Superman. Like he had brass knuckles. He had brass on the front of his boots. Like he had... I mean, he played a little bit of an older version of Batman. He, the suit was awesome. And some of the Batman scenes in that movie are amongst the, like the warehouse fight in that movie is amongst the best bat fight scenes ever to this day. So I have an affinity for him, but I am a fan of the Dark Knight Detective. And I think Robert Pattinson is going to be the premier Batman. He already is, quite frankly. He brings the Dark Knight detective to life. Now that he's accepted in the role and comfortable with the role, now we've got to see what happens in the next two, three installments, if not more. But I was a fan of Christian Bale's performance. I just hated the suit. The suit looked, and then in some behind the scenes footage, you couldn't really move in it. The suit was pretty awkward. Michael Keaton's suit was pretty awkward as well. Was George Clooney? George George Clooney killed the franchise. Even he said it (laughs) until, until... Almost 10 years later, yeah, until Batman Begins by Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan did a fantastic job, grounded the character, but the suit kind of sucked, in my opinion. And then Zack Snyder's take with Ben Affleck was great, and Batman could turn his neck. The suit was, he was able to move, and then that fight scene, the warehouse fight scene, and you could see all the choreography there, Batman's kicking ass like it's a panel of a comic book. But Robert Pattinson, though, took it to another level. I'm still debating. I got to see, you saw, this is my profession and you've seen the movie twice. I've only seen it once. Okay, I got to see it one more time in the next two, three weeks and I can't answer definitively. But as of now, yes, I think Robert Pattinson is, like I previously said, the most accurate portrayal of the Dark Knight detective. I just hope the suit gets better and he, we see the suit evolve as he goes on as Batman in year three, year four, year five. I'm a pain in the ass when it comes to the suit. The suit's great, okay, but I want to see it become better and I want to see the evolution of it. Okay, well, here's my thoughts on it. Okay. I mean, yes, I've seen it twice, and you keep rubbing that in. <laughs> and yes, it was a wonderful thing. You yeah. can play, pay and go see it at yes. the Chinese theatre, and you'll enjoy it. You've yes. got that ticket. But for me, Robert Pattinson absolutely wins it. Okay. No contest, actually. I think it's the first time we see emotionality. It's the first time we see him moving beyond being one-dimensional. Yes, I agree. And that, for me, is character development... And it was interesting hearing Robert Pattinson say that even moving his eyes, he had to really overact everything, but he was in his craft. I really felt that he inhabited every part of that character. He did. In every way. And I think even the suit, I mean, it's right, and it's in keeping tonally, I should say, with the movie itself, in that everything we're seeing is an evolving character. Yes. So it would be right that his suit is something that he can just create himself. Something scrappy. Yeah, yeah it's, it is scrappy yeah. and it's crafty and it's wily and it's street fighting, smart, savvy. And I think we'll see an evolution with that, even with the kit car. So for me, all of that worked of this 
character who doesn't quite understand himself yet and he's trying things out and he's kind of spending a lot of time in his warehousey kind of den trying to figure out who he is and what he wants to do. And with that, his kit, his car, everything's still quite scrappy and being put together by just him. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And he's on a bike a lot of the time as well. So for me, Robert Pattinson, I wasn't sure about him to begin with, but absolutely. And in a movie that really is about male violence and that development as well, it's not just about violence and drugs and mafia kind of crime bosses and organised crime. I think they're starting to sew in some very interesting themes for future. It's a lot grittier. You know, the patriarchy's in there. And I can't help but feel that way. You know, even in the scene where we hear Alfred and Bruce going at it, well, Bruce Wayne is challenging him, saying that Alfred lied to him. You know, there's a moment where Alfred says, well, every boy needs their dad. And just as a new mother now, I will attest that all children, all babies need their mum, first and foremost. And we can become invisible in that kind of script writing. And, you know, I am a feminist and I am going to say I want to see more female character representation, not just the Catwoman, not just Selina Carl. I want to see much stronger, fiercer women and more female writing in there. And I think that's very important. Well, one of DC's, and I agree with you totally, one of DC's biggest hitters is a female writer that we've met named Christina Hodson who I'm not sure if she did uncredited script work on this, but she's pretty much always going back and writing DC projects or rewriting DC projects. Yeah, I don't know if she survived the arbitration process, but she does, she's DC's go-to for like what you say, you know, and she's also a staunch feminist and creating more female empowerment around the DC brand, which is what Walter Hamad is doing right now as we speak with Batgirl, uh, Supergirl, Yes, here's a scoop for your friends, for listeners. Yeah, they, I think they're gearing up. They're looking for a director to what's known as an open directing assignment to direct Supergirl, which should be going in the fall. That hasn't been reported anywhere. So a little treat, scoop nugget for your listeners and something I'm actively tracking. Wow, that's awesome. And you also wrote about the composer, Michael... Giacchino. Giacchino. And he's now going to be not just a composer, but a director, right? He directed some short films. So he's directing Marvel's Halloween special starring Gael Garcia Bernal based on the comic book called Werewolf by Night. So yeah, that story published yesterday. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, I would definitely like to see a lot more female composers and directors and falling upwards and forward in that way. And I'm sure he's learned his stripes. I mean, in the movie, everything about the music, we talked about it before, is a character and it changes the mood, the tone, this, you know, very dark kind of mood. And I did hear him do an interview and just say he always thinks about that character in that moment. What would he... What would be the music that would accompany him? What would he be thinking about? But again, when you hear that... I always think, well, the female interpretation of things is quite different. So I'm always going to be flying the fat flag. And for those who are questioning what a feminist is, well, it means equality. So I like to see it on the screen too, because in my view, if you can't see her, you can't be her. And lots of little girls look up to these types of movies as well. So you've got to have strong female representation as well as an influence in there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the future of DC is female. Well, let's hope so. I mean, always my quick example of that, even when I'm training, is the scene in Queen's Gambit where you see her spiraling. I can't remember if you saw that. Yeah, I saw it with you. 
Okay, there we go. We've seen so many things together. (laughs) And I don't even remember if I brought this up to you then, but it still sticks in my head that she's spiralling, she's drinking, and she's at home, and she's in her best lingerie with a face of makeup, her hair is immaculate. That is not how women spiral. And straight away, I knew it was a male writer. And those things are important to get right. We deserve to be represented. But this is a movie I enjoyed very much. So that having been said, and people might think, well, it's full of male violence and patriarchy and privilege. Yes, it's still out there. It still exists. And we're still trying to smash on through it. And I think there are some great nods that I think Matt Reeves has put in there for the next future movie, whatever that might be. For sure. I don't think it's going to be the Joker. It could be a different villain. I mean, he's probably figuring that out now, unless he already knows. But I, I would think The Court of Owls which is a a book by Scott Snyder, uh, released in the last couple of years, which I recently revisited and was pretty awesome. So I think that could be a sequel possibility, but it's not going to be the Joker, that's for sure. He just said that recently in the press. So it's interesting to see where he goes to next with these characters. Ah, so watch this space. Maybe, Umbe, you'll be breaking that scoop (laughs) in the not-too-distant future. They have to greenlight it first, which I'm pretty sure will come down in the next two, three weeks. Okay, awesome. Well, I've really enjoyed quickfire questions to you and I hope my listeners do too. So I just want to thank you once more for joining me in the Intelligence Cell and having a different kind of conversation. Oh no, thank you for having me. Thank you for the Q&A. And also, I want to go on record. Thank you for being a wonderful mother to our son, Rafi. It means the absolute world to me and to him and to our family. You're a rock star. Oh, thank you, darling. I appreciate that. (laughs) It's not always easy balancing modern motherhood with every other demand. And sometimes you can feel a bit invisible, but I'm going to keep on my mic and not be (laughs) invisible and be very visible. So, and yes, thank you for being Rafi's father. We have a wonderful family. And those of you, well, you can't see us, but we've got Beatrice in here in the intelligence cell too, our golden doodle who's representing. So if you hear (laughs) the odd shake, that's not Umbe, that's Beatrice. So for now, I'm going to thank you, Umbe, for joining me. And to my listeners, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Join me next time in the Intelligent Self, a crime analyst. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.